Well, today we are in part two of a Christmas series that we're calling All I Want for Christmas. All I Want for Christmas, and we started last week by just acknowledging, okay, that all of us want something for Christmas, okay? And I know, like, some of you are at the adult phase, right, and, like, inflation's real, and you're like, no, the budget says all I want is actually just what I need, okay? And so, like, we're going for a new belt this year. It's going to be awesome, okay? Uh, All right, congratulations, dads. All right, that's kind of how it goes sometimes, all right? Mom wants some new, you know, oven mitts, and that's about as extensive as it gets. Uh, No, man, the truth is we all want something. Maybe it's things that you need, Um, But in this series, what we're talking about, it's not necessarily your Christmas list personally, but we're talking about some things that I believe that we all want, or some things that we actually all need. Now, these are not monetary things. These are not tangible things that you go to your favorite store and buy, or you can order online from Amazon. No, these are things that actually, when you receive these things, when you step into these things, they begin to change not just your Christmas week, not just your next year, but they literally begin to change all of your life. And so last week, we talked about all I want for Christmas is, anybody remember that? Peace. Cool. Good. Some of you took notes. The rest of you weren't here. I'll just take it that way. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about all I want is nearness with God. That's how we're going to phrase it. All I want is nearness with God. Now, let's talk honestly today. There are probably many of you who in different seasons of your life, maybe some of you, you're in that season right now. Man, God has felt silent. God has felt distant. Um, God has maybe felt disinterested in your life, in your story. And today, I want you to hear from Scripture that God is not silent. God is not distant. Um, He is not disinterested in you and your family and your relationships and your story and your life. But actually, he is very present and very active. But what I know is that hardwired in every single one of us, and some of you, you even revealed this just by sitting in this moment today. All of us are hardwired to nearness with God, to crave that, to long for that. And so the question today is, how does that happen? In 2023, in the midst of a thousand things in the Christmas season, can I really have nearness with God? What does that really look like in my life? And so we're going to talk about that over the next little while together. James chapter 4 is where that's coming from. So go ahead and turn there with me in Scripture, James chapter 4. As we continue walking through the book of James, we'll put the verses on the screen. Today, we're just going to pick up right where we left off last week, verse 4. We only got through three verses. You guys were really slow listeners last week. Had nothing to do with me, but it was all about you. Um, But no, I'm just kidding. Today, we're going to pick up verse 4, and here's where we're going, okay? All my note takers, and I trust that that's many of you, so that you take what happens in here, and you go live it out out there. We're going to answer kind of one big general question today. You ready? Here's our question today. The question is, how do I know... The nearness of God. How do I unwrap the gift of nearness with God? And scripture, I think, is going to point us to three different things. And so got to keep it in threes because I'm a good preacher in the South. Um, But we're going to answer that question, what does that look like? No matter where you may be as a student, single mom, a grandparent, how can you know the nearness of God? Now, as a warning, okay, because I love you, off the top, I'm just warning you that James, is, he's a little aggressive today, okay? Now, if you know me, I'm sweet, mild, kind, okay? James, not so much today, okay? So it's on him, not me. I'm just reading his words and speaking them to you. All right, we're good with that? Now, here's where uh, James starts. We're going to go verses 4 through 10. Here's where he starts, verse 4. James 4, verse 4, he says, you adulterous people, told you. I told you, all right, he starts strong right off the top. Now, why does James speak it that way? Here's why, because the Jews that James writes to were known as God's people, 
And because they had a covenant relationship with God, go back to Old Testament, they were talked about in the Old Testament as being espoused with God or like united with God in a marriage. That's the picture of that relationship between God and his people. So therefore, for them to have idolatry or any level of sin in their life, in essence, was the same as adultery. Now, let's fast forward to today. It doesn't really get any more real, any more painful, any more deep and destructive than the power of adultery. And some of you um, have unfortunately experienced the damage or the destruction that comes with that. Maybe it was within your own marriage, maybe it was your adult children, maybe it was your parents, maybe it was a friend or close family member, and you've walked through that, or maybe you're walking through that. So why does James drop that here? Why does he use that to describe even these people? Well, the reality is, when you look at sin from God's view, sin is like adultery towards God. Here's what I'm saying. When we claim to love God, follow you, I'm a Christian, count me in, but yet we reject him with the way that we live, in essence, sin becomes adultery Towards God. And I believe that we can all be guilty of downplaying, discounting the weight of sin, and maybe not even taking it as serious as we should. But here's what James says off the top today God takes sin seriously. And therefore, we might need to lean in to what he says about those parts of our life. Let's keep reading. James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, James uses this term, friendship with the world. He's kind of painting another analogy. Now, in James' day, if you studied much of that history and that context of time, um, you grew up typically with your family, like for generations and generations. Like they were close for generations, and that was your people. Like that was your close friends. Okay, fast forward to 2023, and many of us now, we call people friends that we just like their fake pictures online, all right, and say, we follow you. You're my friend. All right, they ain't your friend. They don't even know your name, okay? But James uses this picture to say this, to say, if you are friends with the world, then his words, you are an enemy of God. Now, out of this, let's, let's pull an answer to our big question, how do I know the nearness of God? How do I have nearness with God? If he seems silent, he seems distant, man, I want to get through that. Here's what James points us to. We daily deny friendship with the world okay write it down let's talk about it some of you are like, i don't really like that okay well let's talk about it daily deny friendship with the world there's a choice in that there's a disciplining in that and some of you hear that and you go well that sounds really counter to god's nature right one of the most famous verses john 3 16 we quote it all the time what does it say god so loved the what the world okay is that true yeah it's absolutely true but what is scripture saying there scripture is saying that god so loved the people of the world. Now, as the church, as followers of Jesus, if that's who you are, we are called to love the people of the world, but in many ways to reject the values and the teachings of the world. Now, if we're honest, where we've tripped up a lot, which is why a lot of people got hurt, or a lot of people got confused, is in many ways as proclaimed Christians, we've rejected the people of the world, but we've accepted the values and the teachings and the systems of the world. And James says, no, 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 that's not how it works. No, in fact, Paul would say, Romans chapter 12, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of the what? Some of you know it. 
of the world. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but instead, he says, the counter to that is that you would be transformed by the renewing of your mind, okay? Now, real talk, if you get an hour of Bible a week and 15 hours of Netflix, what you going to be conformed to? Okay, logic, logic tells us that we, we become friends with the world. Now, I want to read to you two verses out of 1 John 2. You can look at it on the screen to drive this point home even further. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the what? World or anything in the what? World. If anyone loves the world, here's what John says. If they love the world, love for the Father is not in them. Why? Because those two loves, those two passions, those two priorities cannot simultaneously exist. You can't chase both of them at the same time. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father. God didn't initiate that, but it came from the world. Now, let's break this down for a second. Scripture highlights, those two verses, three primary ways that the enemy lures us into friendship with the world. Okay, that's what we're trying to deny, but the enemy lures us into that. We just highlighted it. Did you catch it? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay, the enemy, in essence, is like a good bass fisherman, okay? And some of my fellows just woke up. The first thing you've heard all day, all right? What does a good bass fisherman know? They know exactly what lure to use to catch the fish. Stay with me. I'm asking you today, if the enemy was fishing for you to lure you in to be a friend of the world, what lure would he use? Because the truth is, he's fishing. And the truth is, in many ways, we're biting. So let's, let's break this down. Let's go. All right, listen, uh, guard your toes. Going to get heavy here for a second, okay? I'm just preaching the word. That's all I'm doing, all right? First John, he mentions lust of the eyes. Let's go there first. And in many ways, our American culture, if we want to break this all down theologically, in many ways, it's connected to money, all right? Contentment, our stuff. In many ways, it's connected to money. So let me ask you, okay? When you do money, because we all do money, when you do money, do you do money God's way or the world's way? Okay? Friendship with God, friendship with the world. Now, the world views money in three ways. We'll just sum it up like this, three ways. What's mine is mine. That's selfish. Okay? Uh, what's more is mine. That's real selfish. Uh, what's yours is mine. All right? That's stealing. You go to jail for that. Okay? In essence, if you think about it, that's it. That's how the world views money. They live and operate up under one of those three sectors. Now, what's God's way of viewing money? What's mine is God's. What you talking about? Well, that's stewardship because here's why. It acknowledges that everything that I have, everything that's up under my account with my name, my wife's name, listen to me, it actually doesn't even belong to me. It's actually his, and I've been given the role of a temporary manager and a temporary steward of those resources for a certain amount of time. Now, Scripture's really clear, I'm just preaching the word, Scripture's really clear that part of stewardship, part of viewing money God's way, means trusting God with your first and your best financially, okay? As we understand God's word, that means a tithe, all right? That's 10% off the top. That means God gets your first and best. So what does that mean? If you're not bringing God and trusting him with your first and best, you're living the world's way with money, and Malachi actually tells us we're stealing from God what's already his. Did you know that the average American gives 2% to charity? Okay, that's awesome. Charity's a great thing. But they give 
to charity. I didn't, I didn't say church, but Malachi, if we want to read that today, God calls us to bring, because you can't give what's not yours in the first place, but bring back to God right, a tithe, at least a tithe, to say, God, I trust you. This is my worship to you, and I bring it to your house to be used for your mission, your kingdom, as an act of worship to you. That's stewardship. You know what happens when you're a preacher and you talk about money? It always gets real quiet. <laughs> it just does. I don't, he, I don't know. Is he talking to me? I, I don't know. Is he talking to you? Because, see, listen to me. I've said it a thousand times from this stage. Okay? Giving, trusting God with our, with our giving, listen to me. It is not a money issue. It's not. Listen, I know. I know. Inflation's real. Bill's coming. Kids are hungry. I got that. My house, too. Okay? Giving, trusting God, is always, every single time, a heart issue. It's a trust issue. Like, do you trust him or do you not? So John says, beware of the lure of what? Of the lust of the eyes. Because if you live counter to God's ways, right, you're a friend of the world and not a friend of God. First John also mentions this, lust of the flesh. All right, buggle up. Let me ask you. Do you do sex God's way or the world's way? Let's just paint the reality. Christians are getting divorced, same rate as non-Christians. Christians sleeping with people who are not their spouse, same rate as non-Christians. Christians looking at porn, same rate as people who are non-Christians. In fact, in a book called Unchristian, you know what their study showed? Their study showed of a whole bunch of people in our country, in God we trust, okay, that the only real lifestyle variation they found is non-Christians recycle more and Christians play the lottery less. We can laugh at that because it's a little silly, funny. But at the same time, James is saying, here's what he's saying. If there's no difference in your life, there's no difference in your eternal destiny. His problem was you're not doing what you say you believe. Scripture is very, very clear that sex is a gift from God strictly for the marriage relationship, which is only a man and a woman covenanted together by God. Anything outside of that is what? It's outside of God's design. And you may go, well, that sounds really harsh and legalistic. No, it would be the greatest thing that I could do is to tell you that in love because why? Because anything outside of that, God can't bless. And if, and if you want and I want for you what is best in your life, and I don't know if you're chasing that, maybe you've got other goals, but I'm just saying that's a pretty good place to live, chasing what's God's best, then we choose to be friends with God and not friends with the world. Now, lastly, here's the one that First John mentioned. He mentioned the pride of life, okay? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. So here's my question. Do you do popularity and status God's way or the world's way? Okay, as you view who you are, how people view you, where you are in your company, okay? If, honestly speaking, there's actually no way to do popularity God's way, okay? Like, because those two don't coexist. In fact, Philippians 2 tells us that we should have the same humility as Christ who did what, Philippians 2? who actually emptied himself, like he had nothing, and he left the perfection of heaven to come to us to pour his life out to rescue us. Now, here's where we live, though, okay? That's what God's word says. Here's where we live. The world that we live in is just, man, it is full of itself, full of promotion. And guess what? We now have these really cool devices that actually tell us what our status is. Are right? you so grateful for that? Like they tell us how popular we are, how many people follow, how many people like, Oh, that's who I am. And listen, and we let this device and people's opinion define us. 
And what I'm saying today is that if we play the pride of life game that the world offers us, um, James says we are a friend of the world and an enemy of God. And I'm just saying today that if you want to know nearness of God, which is where we started today, there's a daily denying of friendship, not with people in the world, but there's a daily denying of friendship with the world. Let's be honest, okay? I've said a lot in even just those three points. Let's be honest. We live in America. What can you go do today? You can do whatever you want to do, right? They're like, bump you, preacher. You can do whatever you want to do with whoever you want to do it with for however long, and no one can tell you anything. But, watch this, but if you go, no, listen, Jesus is Lord of my life. I'm a Christian. That's what that means. Jesus is Lord, which means he's leader. Then if that's true, then we have to choose to do life his way. Because there's really two ways that we can read this book, okay? We can read it this way. We can read it, all right, and we can place it over us as an authority. You know what that means? That means when we read this and there's something that's off between here and here, guess who's the problem? I am. And then I get to ask God in grace, God, because you love me, because you're merciful to me, would you, would you change, would you sanctify, would you rearrange that part of my life that doesn't because I want to line up with you, okay? That's one way that we can read the word, right? There's another way that you can read the word, and listen, I just can't bring myself to stand on my Bible, but I'm going to put it right there. You can put it up underneath you, and then you can read the word in judgment on what it says and go, well, no, that don't, that don't feel comfortable with my life in 2023. That ain't how, no, that ain't how I do sex. No, I, I want to do money a little bit different. It's tight right now. I'm going to handle it my way, God. Okay, listen. And to do that, James says, is to live as a friend of the world. And nearness of God, nearness with God, is not found when you live as a friend of the world. You with me? Scripture says, therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So let's turn it into a question, application. If you honestly evaluate yourself, spouse, high school student, grandparent, based on just, we're just talking 1 John 2 for a second. Are you living life as a friend of the world? Or your, is your life more friend of God? Okay. And listen, the answer for all of us is, yes, we have been an enemy of God. That's why we need a Savior. And that's why the good news of Christmas is that Jesus stepped into our adulterous state God, I love you, and then I live this way. He stepped into that, and he loved you so much that he rescued you. He offered you a lifeline out of that that you might move from adulterous to friend of God. And so the technical, theological answer is if you are in Christ, you were an enemy of God. So James says, so don't live that way any longer, because when you live that way, you walk away from nearness with God, all right? To know the nearness of God, we daily deny friendship with the world. Add on verse 5, look at this. Or do you think, Scripture says, without reason that he, God, he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us. Stay with me. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus, that you surrender, I want to follow you, your Lord, your leader of my life, a lot of things happen. I just want to talk about one. Scripture says that in that moment, the Spirit of God, God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, okay, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, is gifted into you, is deposited into you as a seal. 
And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now alive in you. And James says that God, the Father, he jealously longs for that spirit. Now, watch what Scripture says about God. It says he's a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14, look at it on the screen. It says, do not worship any other God, little g God, for the Lord, our God, whose name is, what does it say? Jealous. It says his name is jealous. He is a jealous God. Now, don't twist this. God is not jealous of you. He don't want your stuff. He owns it all anyway. He'll take it if he wants it. He's not jealous of you, but here we go. He is jealous for you. And there's a right and a righteous way to be jealous. So why, say with me, why would God be jealous uh, for you? Why would he be jealous? Because, here you go, God is, he knows that he is the only one, he's the only relationship that will fully and finally satisfy. That you can chase everything of the world and you'll just go around that merry-go-round over and over and over only to finally and every single time get off on empty. And you ride it. You put more quarters in there. Just keep going. And he's like, no, 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 no. Life in me, through me, by me. That's the only one that will fully and finally satisfy. And he goes, I long for that. I'm jealous that you would come and taste of that. And so, in fact, for him to be anything other than jealous for us would be for him to not love us. But he longs for that spirit in you so that you might be a friend of God. However, we mess up. We get it out of alignment. So what happens? What's God's response? James 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. It's, it's heavy for verse 4 and 5. But man, you receive that in verse 6. There's nobody who's getting it perfect. But he gives more grace. God is full of grace. And James says he doesn't just give some grace, but he added on. He's like, no, he gives more grace. He gives saving grace, sustaining grace, abundant grace, amazing grace. Let's stand up for all four stanzas right there, okay? He gives us grace to grow, grace to reconcile, grace to fall down, grace to stumble, grace to stand again. And the good news is that the Holy Spirit, watch this, the same Holy Spirit whose spirit convicted us, of when we were a friend with the world, that same grace that lovingly went, don't do that anymore, is the same spirit and the same grace that loves you and picks you back up again and reconciles and heals your heart and gives you all those things that we sang about earlier. I'm blessed and I'm whole and I'm healed. That's his grace. And he gives more of it, James says. Verse 6, read the rest. But he gives more grace that is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. While God is full of grace, we must recognize that grace and pride are eternal enemies. They cannot coexist. Here's what pride says. Pride demands that God blesses me in light of my merits, in light of my good works. Okay? God, you see how much I'm going to church? God done cleaned up my language a little bit. God hadn't drank in three weeks. God trying to love my wife. Bless it. Grace says this. Grace says, I receive it not based on a thing that I did. But it is, it is only purely because of the goodness of who God is. He did it. He initiated it. He went first. Now, James just says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Don't hear this wrong. Humility, we're about to talk about it, 
Humility doesn't earn the grace of God. But when we get humble, guess what it does? It positions us to receive the grace of God. Okay? A prideful person is not going to receive the grace of God. Why? Because I got it figured out. It's on me. Now, here's the second answer. All my note takers, write it down. Second answer to our question. How do I know? How do I receive the nearness of God? I'm just pulling it right out of the word. Put off pride. We put off pride by submitting to God's power. We're going to talk about a few of those words. Put off pride by submitting to God's power. Verse 6, Scripture posed the proud versus the humble. It was like, man, put them in the MMA ring together right here, back and forth. What's the motto of the proud? I got this. What's the motto of the humble? I ain't got this. And Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, what, for the glory of God. He stepped off of the throne. Think about this. He left the perfection and the right hand of God to step into the mess. And he lived in the greatest act of humility. Nobody will ever match it. But because he modeled that, that's why Scripture says, so how does God feel now? Well, God actually opposes the proud. He can't handle that. But, man, he shows grace and favor to the humble. James 4, verse 7 says, submit yourselves. Second part of our, our statement. Submit yourselves. Then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Here's what James is saying. If you want to be a friend of God rather than a friend of the world, where does it start? starts with submission to God. Submission to God. When we learn to put off the pride, we lay down our spiritual resume, or I got this, or I'm man enough, I can handle this, I'm a big girl, I've walked through this before. When we lay that down and we live in humility, we've got room for submission to God. As long as the pride wall's up, forget it. You ain't submitting. And we can all see it. Okay? You ever thought about this? Submission, especially to God, submission really starts at the point that you don't like it. Is that registering? I'll help it make sense, okay? If God, uh, if God comes along and he chooses to bless you with a new job that doubles your salary, okay, how hard is it for you to submit up underneath that, right? You're probably like, oh, I don't even need to pray about that. I'm just, we're gone. We're good, okay? But if God comes to you and he calls you to be generous, he calls you to tithe, or he calls out the sin of selfishness in your life, guess what begins to start happening right then? Then you're going to choose whether you're submitting or not. God, you want me to forgive? God, you want me to serve? God, you want me to tithe? Now I'm going to have to figure out whether I'm choosing to submit. Submission starts at the point that you and I don't like it, and one of the hardest areas, because we're fleshly people, this is all of us, one of the hardest areas to submit is in the area of temptation and sin. And that's why James says, the three words he says, resist the devil. Now, who is the devil? Some of y'all, y'all put the devil up in everything, okay? And sometimes it's just you, right? I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? I did say that, okay. The devil, Scripture tells us, is what? He's the father of lies. He's the master of deceit. And listen, he's amazing at it. He's been doing it since chapter 3, Genesis 3, until today. He's amazing at it. And he's there to do what? To throw the lure. And he's a master fisherman. And he lures us in over and over and over. So that's why James says, man, choose to stand against, resist the devil. And sometimes, man, we flirt with it, we entertain with it, we get as close to the line as possible. Sometimes people ask me, well, preacher, can we do this? I'm like, if you're asking it, you're probably already too close to the line. James says, actually resist the devil. And the two words there from the Greek, it comes from two words, stand and against. So is that the question that you're really asking? 
Are we standing against this sin? Or are we just we getting as close as we can? Maybe God will be okay with that. No, he says stand against, and here's the good news today, because some of you, listen, some of you step into this space, and man, you're welcome here, and you're like, man, if I got no spiritual resume, but I got a whole track record of a season of my life, or 35 years of my life, brokenness, man, choosing everything but God. Listen to me. Here's the promise of Scripture. The enemy will be sent off running by the faith of anyone who comes up under the authority of the power of God. You ain't got to be following him for 30 years to know his power. You just got to submit and go, God, it's your ways, not mine. So we put off pride by submitting to God's power. I got one more thing for you. And listen, some of you, this is the moment. Like, this is it. This is what you needed today. Sometimes, though, we get it wrong when it comes to resisting sin in our life. Here's what I mean. Because we only try to get rid of the bad stuff. We only, right? Don't drink, smoke, chew, or date girls who do. Okay, if I get those things right in my life, I'm going to be all right. Get it out. Get it out. Listen, is there a removal of some things? Absolutely. We just talked about it. First John 2, lust of the flesh, lust of the, pro, uh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. We've got to figure out how to root those things out. But it's like this. All my healthy yard people, okay, some of y'all, some of you ain't got a green thumb or two of them, all right? But if you just went out to your yard, all you did was just pull a few weeds out, but you never poured any fertilizer. You never cultivated the yard. Listen to me. It might grow a little bit. But it's not going to become the lush green yard that you want in the middle of July. And here's why I'm saying that. You can't just kill the things that are killing you. Some of you, that's your goal. Like, man, if I try really hard, stop that addiction, let that thing down. Listen, you can't just kill the things that are killing you. But then you have to come back around and you have to do things that continually stir your affection for God. Because then that replenishes that empty void that's in you. Because some of you pull the bad thing out and then just another one jumps in the hole. And God says, no, 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 no. Man, what are you doing to stir your affections continually for me? And what does your time in the Word look like? How, how are you gathering with other believers? Man, how are you serving me? How are you trusting me? Church, I've never, I've never known a growing, maturing Christ follower who didn't consistently spend time in God's Word with God's people and in God's presence. I just happened. You know what I have known? I've known hundreds of of really stagnant, self-proclaimed Christians who fill a chair for maybe an hour a week if it works out. But the ones who are fruitful, ones who are multiplying, the ones who are making disciples and knowing the nearness of God, they are consistently spending time in God's word, with God's people, and in God's presence. So to know the nearness of God, may we put off pride, lay it down. I got to choose it every day, lay it down. I submit to God's power and listen, I know, man, those first few verses, whoo, he's swinging. I told you he was. I warned you, right? And in the middle of that, in the middle of him exposing, man, just that brokenness, James was broken too. God inserts this just amazing, one of the most amazing promises in all of Scripture. All right, so piqued your interest now. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, come near to God, and he will do what? He will come near to you. I mean, what I know is that some of you, like, you're, you're doing the church thing today. But you're like, God seems so distant. Like, I know I sang God is so good a while ago, but I didn't really believe a word of it. And he seems so silent. He seems so disinterested. I've been here three weeks in a row, and I just haven't felt anything, but I try to keep coming back. And I'm just telling you today that the God of the universe 
looks at you and he says, man, if you will just lean into me, my promise is I will draw near you. I'll come near to you. Um, let's, let's paint it this way. Wives, okay, all my ladies, all right, wives, imagine with me for a second. If you knew with 100% certainty that if you just leaned in and just loved your man just a little bit, that every single time you did, he'd love you back. He'd speak words of life to you. He'd listen to your stories all night long about how great the day was, how horrible it went. He'd provide for you. He'd protect you. He'd wash the dishes. He'd bathe the kids and get them in bed on time. Like every time he just did it, he'd scratch your back with no strings attached. <laughs> Some of you ladies are laughing. Why? Because you're like, because that's fiction. <laughs> We've been doing it for 23 years, and that ain't how it works. Right? Listen to me. On a similar but so much grander fashion, the God of glory looks at you and me in our brokenness, in our waywardness, in our adulterous state, and he says, hey, if you'll just, um, if you'll just lean into me, you ain't got to come all the way because you can't, but if you just lean into me, my promise is you'll know my nearness. Man, I, I, I will come near to you. I'll, I'll draw near to you. And that's it. That's, that's the third and final answer to the question today. I mean, how, how do we know, how do we understand the nearness of God? And that is to draw near to God in humility. To draw near to him in humility. As you write that down, catch this um, in just really amazing, beautiful picture, okay, for all my scripture study people. Under the Old Covenant, okay, Old Testament, God told Moses to do what? When he encountered the burning bush, he says, do not come, what, any closer. In fact, take off your shoes. No, you stay over there because you actually can't even come near to me. There's so much waywardness, so much brokenness, and so much holiness over here. No, you stay over there. And here, are you catching James? Here, James looks at the most jacked up, black-hearted, broken sinner, and he says, hey, guess what? Man, if you'll just draw near to me, I'm going to come meet you right where you are. So what changed? What changed from the first 39 to the back 27? Well, here's what changed. The ground between God and all sinners has now been covered by the blood of Jesus. That's why the cross is such a big deal. Why? Because it opened access. And he made a way for us to know him, to be drawn into him. So he says you can know the nearness of God. Why? By just being drawn to him in humility. And then the rest of verse 8 says this, James 4. Come near to God. And he will come near to you. Then he says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's what James is doing. He's just quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 24, the word supporting the word. And here's what Psalm 24 talks about. It talks about how do we draw near to God. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? The psalmist is going like, hey, who can get in? Like, who, who's qualified? Who's close to God? And then he backs it up with another question. He says, who may stand in his holy place? Here's the answer, verse 4. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Do you know who lives that way? Not you and me. Not us. We, we can't, to answer the psalmist, we can't ascend to the mountain of the Lord. But do you know what the good news of the gospel, why it's such a big deal, is because the picture of the gospel is that Jesus descended the mountain of the Lord. And he stepped into your world and mine, into your brokenness and mine, and he paid a punishment 
from Christmas to Easter that changed everything. He paid for your punishment. And then, okay, then his righteousness got all up on the unrighteousness of my life. And then he pulls us to the mountain of the Lord. That's the good news of what Jesus does. And then James rounds out our passage today with verse 9 and 10, James 4. He says, grieve, mourn, well, um, change your laughter to mourning, change your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves. That's our word again. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will, in his strength, in his power, in his grace, he will then, he'll lift you up. Now, you read verse 9, and like, that's kind of a ho-hum place to end, right? Grieve, mourn well, it sounds like a lot. Here's why James is saying that. Because it's a picture of repentance. That's what those words mean. Grieve, mourn, well. James is saying that when you and I get to the place where we realize that we are spiritually bankrupt, I got nothing righteous to put on the table. When we get to that place where we realize we're spiritually bankrupt, guess what? We are perfectly positioned to know the nearness of God. That's that's surrender. That's repentance. Drawing near to God means, in humility, seeing yourself in light of Christ, which means that you go, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and simultaneously, I am what Paul says in Romans 8, I am more than a conqueror. And I know, if you think about that, it'll make your head explode. But that's what it means, that in humility, I know I have nothing But in Christ, I have everything, and I know him in that way. So what does it mean? We've said it, but what does it mean to draw near to God in humility? All right, it's a great phrase. Write it down. But like, for your Monday at 3 o'clock, what what does that mean? I think there's just a few things that I wrote down. I think it means intentionally. Write that word down. It means intentionally. You don't accidentally do this. No, we're broken and we're adulterous in our accidental state. But we intentionally do this. We prioritize worship, praise, and prayer. Personally, like me time, don't need the preacher, don't need the gathering. I'm just seeking Jesus. And then I also do it with others. Like it's, it's, not, it's not a box I check because I live in the South. Like that's what I do because I'm a follower of Jesus and I need his nearness. Second, I think that it means that we draw near to God by asking and seeking his counsel in our life. I don't know how to lead the meeting tomorrow. I got, I got a kid that I've been raising for 20 years, and, man, they're living like a crazy person. I got one that's about to hit teenage years, and, man, what do, what do I do with that, right? What, whatever your thing is, man, I'm seeking counsel. I'm not scrolling Facebook for the next feel-good meme, but, man, like the words in my life, I got people who love Jesus in my life, and they're speaking to me, giving me counsel. And then I think it means this. I think it means living daily with awareness of God's Spirit in your life. What does that mean? I mean, that means if you're a follower of Jesus, what we said earlier, the spirit that God's longing for, like he's jealously, that he put inside of you, that means when that spirit prompts you to walk in generosity, that spirit prompts you to forgive, whether it feels good or not, where that spirit prompts you to lead, to make a disciple, to make an investment, to serve, whatever the spirit prompts, you know what we do? I mean, we get better and better at just saying yes. And the time lapse between he speaks and we obey, it gets shorter and shorter. Because, man, he, he drives. He's the Lord. He's the authority over my life. I'm just submitting to him. That's what it looks like 
to draw near to God in humility. And you know what the promise from God is? Every single time he meets us there. So some of you are going, man, he still feels really silent. Feels really distant. Can I just tell you something? He didn't leave. He didn't change. So I was thinking about this this week. God kind of brought this picture to mind. And I'll land the plane here today. One of the greatest joys, I'm just talking for me, one of the greatest joys of my life is nearness with my wife. Okay? Listen to me. I'm not talking about physical. I'm talking about relational nearness with my wife. Where 15 years ago, the two became one. And we were called to live in relational nearness to one another. Now, if the preacher's shooting straight today, there have been days, there have been weeks, there have been seasons over the last 15 years where we have not been near to one another. No, no, no. Like, we lived in the same house. No, no, no. We sat at the same dinner table, ate the same food, slept in the same bed, brushed our teeth right next to each other, and managed the same children in the same bank account. No, like, we, all that was still there. But we were not near to one another. Sometimes it was because life just got busy. Sometimes it was because one of us was being very selfish. Sometimes it was unmet or unspoken expectations. Sometimes we just quit pursuing each other. And if I'm honest with you, if you're married, you've probably been there before. It, was some of, uh, it has been some of the most uncomfortable, um, unsatisfying, unfulfilling days of the last 15 years of my life when I, was, when I was not walking in relational nearness to my wife. But there is no greater joy than when he has reconciled us. When we come out of that season out of that day, out of that week, and we've been brought near together again. You know why? Because I was called, I was created, and I was covenanted to be in nearness to her. Church, hear me. You were created. You were called. And some of you, you've been saved to live in nearness to God. And listen to me. You can sit in a church building every Sunday, and you can mumble some words when the song's on the screen. And you can tell all your peeps that you're a Christian. But he can still feel very silent and very distant and very disinterested. And I'm just telling you and me today, when there's brokenness in my marriage, there's probably some fault on both sides. When there's distance between us and God, you know what? He didn't change. But it's me. And James says today, you want to know the nearness of God? Because I bet that's part of what you're longing for. It doesn't come naturally, but it comes with intentionality. And to put off pride, submit to the power of God, to deny daily, let go, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Daily, daily, I'm putting that off. I don't want to be near to God. I don't want to be an enemy of him. I'm near to him. And then finally, that means to humble myself. I got nothing to put on the table. But I'm going to draw near to him in humility. And then his promise, he meets us there every time, absolutely, three, 365 days a year. He'll draw near to us. And you will know his nearness. 
Thanks for joining us online today. As we gather, we sing songs of worship, we center ourselves on the truth of God's word, we encourage one another through community, and we do it all so that we might be changed to live more like Jesus. Through our time today, we pray God showed you what it means for you to follow Jesus with your life and to live as the church in the world. We are available and ready to pray for you and encourage you as you discover and grow in your faith. To speak with one of our ministry team members or to have someone pray for you, you can text your first name to 601-397-6111 or message us through any of our social media channels. Our ministry team would love to pray for you and help you in any way. You can also find reading plans and other resources to help you take next steps in your faith on our website. That's www.theexchange.cc. As we close out our time today and prepare to scatter as the church, let's speak out loud our declaration together. We believe the great exchange took place when Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us so we could know God. We exist to see people exchange their old life for new life in Christ and live out their purpose. Christ's love compels us to exchange ideas for truth. God's word is our standard. Selfishness for serving, we will serve others. Pleasing for reaching, we will share our faith. Keeping for dispersing, we will make disciples. Forgetting for celebrating, we will praise God. We are the church.